Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's good to see you guys. If you've got a Bible, go to John chapter 8. We did 50 verses last week. We're going to do one this week. <laughs> did I hear applause starting? Yeah, sometimes, you know, you get one look. I'm, it's a little dishonest because we're going to talk about one, but I'm going to talk about a bunch of other ones to explain that one. So just to be fair. Uh, so I... I um, so let me say, good job to you all. One of the things we do when we come together is the scriptures command us to sing, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I don't know if you always think about that, but when you come in the house of the Lord, when you come in here, um, you're not just singing to the Lord, you're also encouraging those around you. When you sing with a full-throated kind of praise, you are both bearing witness that there's a God who's worthy of that kind of praise, and you're also uplifting your brothers and sisters who may be in a place where it's very hard to sing. You've had weeks where it's hard to sing, yes? There's some difficulty going on in your life. There's whole seasons sometimes where it can be hard to sing. Don't stop coming to the people of God. Let them sing those psalms and, hear, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to you to encourage and uplift you. The other thing that we're doing is we come to God's word, and it's always good to remember this, even as we get into a specific text today, is that we are bridging the gap between us generationally in a really beautiful way. So where's my 30 and under crowd? How many of you under 30? So I see some hands go up. All right, so I just learned this this most recently. You can tell me if you agree with this or not. I found out that because I send my texts in full sentences with punctuation and often with emojis, I am clearly identified as 35 plus. Is that right? Yes, some nodding heads. Yeah, you're old. That's what that identifies. I'm not gonna give up my winky face emoji. I'm just not gonna do it. I really enjoy the winky face emoji and my punctuation, I found out from a 28-year-old, my period is like, I am mad at you that I put that period in there. I'm not mad at you if you text me. I'm 28. Communication changes by generations, right? So what is meaningful to one generation, slang that works in one generation, like if you still use the word groovy, you're even older than I am right? Things change generationally. It just is the nature of it. Communication changes. And so churches, the gospel, the ministry, the work of Jesus keeps contextualizing as time moves forward. But one of the things, and by the way, that's part of the reason why if you're young and those who are older than you, if they feel disoriented and even sometimes that disorientation makes them feel angry, it's because the world changes fast and it's hard to get a hold of that, right? But Friends, those of us who are a little older, you don't need to be afraid or angry about you know, the pace of change in the world because when we come together every Sunday, we bridge the gap between generations through something that is constant and that is God's word. So we go to look at God's word because whether we're 18 or 88, that word is eternal and it has meaning. And so the thing to always remember is God calls you into ministry and where he leads you, go follow him wherever he leads you, wherever he sends you. But as he does, remember this, like never aim for relevance. If you aim for relevance, you'll get faddishness. But if you aim for what is eternal, you'll get relevance. So always aim for the eternal. Aim to speak that which is eternal. And that will always be relevant across every generation. And it's good for us to remember that. We have a church that is multi-generational and I'm really thankful for it because it means we're handing the gospel to the next generation who we pray will carry it faithfully and hand it on to the next generation. The gospel is never about the present generation. It's almost always about the next, yes? About raising it up, bringing it forward. So anyway, as we think about then today, this claim that Jesus is going to make, it's gonna be both a promise and a command to his people. 
we're looking at these seven I am statements in the gospel of John. We started last week, and if you weren't there, we looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and what that means. Every single one of these is Jesus saying, I, I can show you something about God and offer you something in light of that that I want you to have. And so we're journeying through that. John organizes his gospel around these seven I am statements. And so his gospel is a little less linear than some of the other gospels because what he's trying to do is take a lot of the events of Jesus and show you their theological meaning, show you the teachings of Jesus and their, the depth of their theological meaning. There's deep theology in Matthew and Mark and Luke, of course, but John is more explicitly theological in the sense that he is trying to drive you and I's attention to the meaning behind everything Jesus does so that we might believe in him and find him more beautiful and more believable than anything in the world and walk with him. So we come to John chapter eight today and we're gonna look at this one verse, verse 12, and here's what it says. Let's look at it together and we'll have it on the screens. Again, Jesus spoke to them. And now I need to identify who is Jesus speaking to. He's speaking to the religious leaders among the Jewish nation. And if you remember last week, we said there's always three audiences in the Gospel of John. There's those who are the disciples. They are believers. They are deeply committed to him. They don't always know why he's doing what he's doing. They don't always understand the things that he has said. But they have devoted themselves to him. And they say, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. Even when Jesus is kind of shrinking the herd by teaching and saying hard things, they are the ones that stick. They're like, we're with you. We're not always sure. <laughs> How many of you are not always sure what God is doing in your life? <laughs> I don't understand what is happening right now. But you're the one. I'm with you. The disciples, the second group is the crowd and they're sort of on the fringe and they like Jesus sometimes because of what Jesus is willing to offer them, what they're gonna get from him. Um, he seems fascinating to them. They like the miracles. They like the provision of bread, those kinds of things. And he's inviting that crowd to, to go further and deeper into him. And then the third audience is those who are really antagonistic towards Jesus and we would say skeptical. When he says something about himself, they're skeptical. They're, they're not necessarily sure that they, well, they are sure. They're sure they don't agree, right? And so they're approaching him from that standpoint. And those are, those are pre, pretty, three pretty good audiences to even to think about our current day. Would you agree? Yeah, and so every one of us fits in one of those categories here today. And he is speaking to those who are skeptical today. So this claim specifically is for those who are skeptical. And I, what, we're gonna just divide the sermon into two parts today. How is Jesus light, that's what he's going to say. How is he light for those who are skeptical? I'm just going to give you some things to chew on. And if you're not skeptical, you have friends who are. You have friends who are. So perhaps some of this you can tuck away and go, oh, this is helpful uh, to think about how the scriptures talk about this idea of Jesus being light. And then how is he light for those who are his followers, those who are his disciples? So that's, the sermon is real simple, two points today. We're just going to look at that and see what they will teach us. All right, so again, Jesus spoke to them saying, here's what he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, friends, you recognize that as he gives that I am statement, he says, I'm the light of the world, and I put the emphasis on the light of the world for a reason, we'll talk about that in a moment. He gives that statement, and he doesn't do this in all the other I am statements. He gives a promise then on the other side of that. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And we'll talk about what that phrase means, what that promise is. But first, I just want you to see this. He is offering you a promise and a command with that promise. So there's a promise. If you'll walk with him, if you'll follow him, if you'll tether yourself to him, your life will not be marked by darkness. It will be marked by something called the light of life. But you have to do that. You have to follow him. You have to walk with him to have your life marked by that light. So it is both a command, follow me, as well as a promise. If you will do this, your life will not be marked by darkness. Does everybody see both the promise and the command? Yes? All right, fantastic. Then we're on the same page. Let's keep moving them. So let's talk. I said the first thing we want to do is spend a little time thinking, how is Jesus light for the skeptical? And specifically, if you are skeptical, or if you're sitting here today and you have a friend who is, I hope this will be helpful to you. But let's just look at how we might see what Jesus is saying. Because again, that's exactly who he's talking to here, those who absolutely do not agree with him. And he's gonna say, let me, let me share with you something. So the first thing you need to see is Jesus is light for the skeptical because he's claiming he can show you the God who made you. He's claiming, when he says, I'm the light of the world, that he can show you the God who made you. Now, here's what I mean by that. We looked at this last week in Exodus chapter three, verse 14, which I won't go into deeply, other than to say, God is talking to Moses. Moses is being sent to Israel to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, well, God, you're talking to me, but when I go to them, they're gonna say, who sent you? And God gives him his name, his calling card, if you will. And he says, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. So from that moment forward, Israel, the nation of Israel, recognizes I am as, the, as a name of the one true God. And so whenever Jesus takes up this statement, I am, he is saying that when you see me, you are seeing God the Father. You are seeing the only God who exists when you look at me. That's a really big claim. Everybody agree with that, yes? Huge. But we need to recognize that's what's going on. And in fact, at the end of this chapter, John 8, 58, he's going to say it in the most direct way possible. He's going to say, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him because they know exactly what he's saying. So make no mistake, Jesus is not interested in telling you, those of you who are skeptical, that he's a good teacher or that he's a prophet or that he was a good religious leader. All those things are true of him, but he is interested in you understanding this claim. He is saying that he is God. And he's saying, I and I alone can reveal the creator of the universe to you. So that's the connection to the Old Testament and the I am statement. Now, listen. A couple other things you need to see. And let's just be really upfront about it. Jesus says, I can reveal God to you, right? The God who is light, I reveal him to you. But I, I do it for faith. You must believe in order to have the Father revealed to you. That's why he says, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness. If you follow me, John 12, verse 46 says, I came to give light to those who believe so that they wouldn't walk in darkness. Same idea uses believe in one context, follow in another. And perhaps here we're hearing something a little bit more intimate than even just to get past in case we might hear that John 12 as just believe here. He says, no, follow, follow me, walk closely to me, right? Now let me show you something that is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful texts. When Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, 
And that means I can illuminate the Father for you. What he's saying is that he has inaugurated, brought about, began the kingdom of eternal light. The kingdom of God where God dwells with his people and his light so shines that there's no need for sun or moon in that place and the place where there is no darkness, no moral confusion, no small act of sin, no impurity, nothing about it. Jesus says, by being here, I have begun and ushered in that kingdom and it is coming in full for you and I can give you a place in that place, in the very presence of God. Here's the day Jesus is pointing to when he says, I am the light of the world. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. Listen to what it says. Same, same author, John, having a vision. He says, I saw no temple in this city. The new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven into the new heaven and the new earth. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. Do you see what it's saying? The lamb is Jesus and he's saying because God is present in this place, because Jesus is present in this place, they provide all the light that is needed. To be in this place is to be in the eternal presence of absolute pure perfection is to be in the presence of very light of very light, as some ancient theologians have said. What Jesus is saying is not some nice little turn of phrase. I'm the light of the world. Believe in me, you won't walk in darkness. He's saying, come into the presence of the living God. He lights everything. He defines what light is. He illuminates the darkness and chases it away. I come and shine in the world and the darkness will not overcome me. That's what he's saying. So friends, if you're skeptical, I just, I just want you to recognize that if you can imagine living in a kingdom of eternal light where there's no darkness and even good things like the sun and the moon are no longer necessary because they were placeholders for the one who is true light and now you're with him. And everything is light. Everything is glorious light. No darkness, no shade or hint of it any longer. Can you fathom it? When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's inviting you into that place, that place. He's saying, I can make this place your place. We said it's given for faith. Now, what is given for faith? Let's talk about this phrase. And he says, you won't walk in darkness if you follow me but you will have the light of life. The best way to understand that phrase is that he is saying, you will have the light that produces life. True, meaningful, purposeful life. He's saying, if you will walk with me, follow me, your life will be marked by a fullness and a joy and a moral clarity and a protection and a provision, a fullness and a richness that my light will produce in your life. And we're going to talk about what that looks like here in just a moment for believers, okay? You'll be so marked by that kind of fullness of life if you'll follow me. That's what I'm promising you. I've yet to meet the person who's not looking for a full life. We just have disagreements about where we find it. And so what I wanna to offer to you today, what I wanna paint a picture of for you today is the kind of fullness that Jesus offers. And that's what he's saying. He says, I'm the light of the world. He's offering you a fullness of life, a life marked by his light 
pouring into you and through you. All right, so the next thing we see here is that he is saying that only he can do it. And I'll make short shrift of this because it's kind of obvious already. But I said he is the light of the world, emphasis on the, because you need to recognize that when he says that, he's saying, if he says I'm the light, doesn't say I'm a light, he's saying there's only one light and it's me. There's not another one. There's not like, hey, later on there'll be somebody else and it'll be, and they'll be the light. And then, you know, I am the light. And then in case we might think, well, maybe he's light for a certain group of people, for a certain place. He says, I'm the light and I am that light, the only one. And I'm that for everybody, for the world. There is no place on earth. Sometimes there's this idea, well, I mean, culturally Christianity is more Western and in the East, you know, it's just kind of all aiming at the same place, trying to get to the same thing. And Friends, Jesus just doesn't allow for that kind of thinking. I mean, if, if you want to paint him as just one way among many, he himself just says, no, no, no. You can't put that on him. He doesn't allow it. He says, I'm, I'm the only light and I'm for the entire world. Now, the thing I do want you to see there is that he is offered to the entire world. He's the only light that's available across all of humanity. There is no cultural, like, oh, because they're from this culture, therefore he's not the light for them. Somebody else will be the light for them. No, no, he's the light for the world. But make no mistake, what he's saying is follower now, let me just jump over to those of you who are followers. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who does not care about the nations, who does not care about God's presence in the entire world, who exalts their own people group over other people groups, because we understand he is light for the nations, for the world. Going all the way back, this is one of the greatest themes throughout all of scripture again and again is how God is global in his purposes and he wants to reach people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We see it in Revelation 5 and 7 where they're gathered around the throne of God. We see it in the claim of Jesus here to be the light of the world. But go back 700 years before Jesus existed and listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, describing the Messiah who would come. Here's what God promises this Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Do you see what he said? To be the redeemer of one people, too small for you. And then he says this, I will make you, the Messiah, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God is on a mission to reach people from everywhere. And friends, there's no, there should be no such thing as, an, as a non-globally minded Christian. There should be no such thing as a believer who does not set their sights on the ends of the earth and say, God, extend your kingdom to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I want my resources to go towards that. I want my time to go towards that. You've called me and placed me here. Praise God, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. Let's extend the kingdom here. God, where else are you moving and how do I support that work? We wanna see you go to every tribe. We wanna see you in the east. We wanna see you in the west. We wanna see you in the north. We wanna see you in the south because you are light for the nations. Now, let me go back to the skeptical for a moment. Sorry, I jumped over to the church. Couldn't help myself, all right? But let's think about this now. Um, let me invite you into this. And you can, you can tell me if you feel this is right or not, but I wanna encourage you to ask the right 
questions about Jesus. If you're skeptical, I want you to ask the right questions because I see so many folks asking the wrong questions. And I don't mean that they're bad questions. They're just not the most important questions. So what happens in the text here, right? So this skeptical group of people, Jesus talked to him. He makes a claim. It's a big one. I am the light of the world. Follow me. You won't walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. And the very next thing that they do is they try to dismiss Jesus' claim on a technicality. They say, well, you're the one bearing witness about yourself, therefore your testimony isn't true. Well, first of all, that's not even logic. That's a non sequitur in the world of logic. You understand that, yes? You can say something about yourself and it can be true. If I say I'm wearing a white shirt right now, I said it, but is it true? (laughs) Yes, it has blue on it too. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah. All right, how about this? Let me, for those of you who are really tech, I'm wearing a watch right now. Is that true? Yeah, it's verifiable. It's, there's a veracity to that statement. Of course, there's things that you, you can see the watch. So that probably helps, right? But my point is this, just because I said it doesn't make it not true. And that's where they go. They go to this technicality. They try to, they try to avoid the claim of Jesus by pointing to secondary issues. And they do so in a way that's illogical, And can I just say this to you, friends, or for your friends who are skeptical? As as you're engaging in this, don't dismiss Jesus or or push him away because of a technicality you think you found. Because, well, this thing didn't go right in my life, or people in the church were mean to me one time a long time ago, or I struggle with this sort of part of theology. I I don't understand how this thing works. Those are fine questions. I'm not dismissing the value of those kinds of questions, but they're not the most important ones. You know the question they should have asked? What do you mean you're the light of the world? They should have asked about Jesus, not tried to dismiss him on a technicality. And let me just say, as you're exploring, if you're skeptical, as you're exploring, just resist the urge to push him away because of technicalities. I don't find that to be a a super honest approach, but it happens again and again. So I'm just gonna invite you to maybe ask whether you're doing that or not. I was having a conversation with someone this week and they were just lots of great intellectual questions about the gospel. They do not, not believe in Jesus. And as we were talking about that, they were saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And, And you know, good questions. And I was given some, answers, some thoughts to those things. Yeah, well, maybe consider this, or or here's a thought about that and why that objection, here's how I might answer that objection or whatever it may be. All kind of intellectual in nature. Very good. But then they asked the best question they asked. They said, well, okay, so tell me why you believe. (laughs) And I said, let me tell you right now, you're probably not, given all that we've just talked about, you may not like my answer. Because I don't, I don't believe for, because of any of the answers to the questions I just gave you. Not a single one of those is the reason I believe. I believe because Jesus is utterly compelling to me. Everything he said, everything he did. I mean, if God was going to live on the earth, what more would I want him to look like? Speaking truth to hypocrites, raising the dead, giving blind sight, speaking with tenderness and compassion to hurting people, ministering to the crowds and being unafraid and then going to his death in sacrificial love, what more could I want? I believe because Jesus is absolutely compelling. I don't always understand what he's doing in my life. 
I don't always understand everything he said in all its nuance and depth, but he's the one. He's the one. There's no one like him. So my invitation is maybe just don't push him away for secondary kinds of things. Now, let me also say to those who are skeptical and your friends who are skeptical, you should expect that there's gonna be an internal resistance to believing in Jesus. There's gonna be an internal resistance to believing in Jesus. And the scriptures testify to this, John chapter three. So go back a little earlier in the gospel of John and listen to what he says. Now, remember the context is in John three sixteen, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He's just said, God has extended himself to redeem. And then in verse 19, just a few verses later, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people, it's you and me, love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see what he's saying? One of the things that happens in us is Jesus comes into the world as light and he shines light into the darkness and we shrink away from it because there is sin in us. There is wickedness in us and we don't want it exposed. We don't want it to be seen. We feel the shame and the guilt of it and we shy away from the light. So friends, that's all of us, every one of us. And my encouragement to you is to recognize that that resistance is going to come because the sin in you does not want to be exposed by the light of Jesus. Mine didn't either. By the mercy of God, he, he overcomes that objection in us. But there's only two responses that you can have. There are really two and only two, and there are different variations and shades of these responses. But when it comes to that feeling of shame and guilt that your sin produces in you, there's really only these two responses, the response of the world and the response of the church. The response of the world is to say, who are you to judge me for the things that I desire, want, my actions? I live my life unto myself and no one has a right to judge me. And what happens then is that we exalt the things in us that are displeasing to God because we almost have to take the opposite approach. We feel ashamed perhaps in them, but we work it full cycle to where we then go, well, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pulpit this thing. And rather than see it as an issue of shame, I'm gonna say, no, it's actually my core identity. I'm gonna say it's a thing that's not a thing of shame. You have to almost counteract that sense of shame that you experience from those things of darkness that are in our minds and in our hearts and our desires you end up counteracting it by exalting it and tying it to your very core identity. That's the world's approach. The other approach is what the Bible calls repentance, which is to say, God, you have the right to call certain things darkness and to call other things light. And if you call something in me darkness, then I won't say, how dare you speak against this thing I desire. I won't say I have a right to that thing that I want or to do that thing that I like to do. No, I'll respond by saying, you are the judge, you are the righteous one, and I bow before you. Take my sin from me. The beauty is that Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin, so that coming out of darkness and into light means not having sin exposed and being condemned by the sin that is exposed, but being rescued from it by the eternal saving blood of Jesus so you don't have to fear coming into the light, praise God. The last thing I'll say for those who are 
skeptical about the claims of Jesus, what he means when he says, how am I light for you, is he illuminates himself and the Father for you in a unique way that you might not see. So I'll tell you this, if you're skeptical, look to the work of God in your own life. And I trust that it's there. You may not see it, but I trust that it's there. So listen to what John 1 says, talking about light. John 1 verses three through five says this. It says, all things were made through him. That's Jesus, talking about him being present at the very beginning in creation. So he's creating with the Father the entire universe. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he didn't just make part of creation. He made everything. If it exists, he made it. In him was life. And in this context, that means the power to create. He was the one creating. He had the ability to create something out of nothing. You cannot do that. He creates something from nothing. And the life, that creating power, was the light of men. What does that mean? Think about that for a moment. That life, that ability to create that Jesus possessed was the light of men, right? And it says the light shines in the darkness. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, it's interesting because he uses an imperfect and then a present tense there. So he says that light, that life, that creating power was the light of men, and an imperfect tense, when it says was, it means something that happened in the past that continues into the present. So that word was, that's why he goes to the present tense when he says, and he shines in the darkness. It didn't say he shined. It says he shines. So he was, that creating power, here's what he's saying. Because I made everything, Jesus is saying, my fingerprints are on everything. All human beings bear my image, my likeness wrecked by sin, but it's there. All of creation bears my fingerprints. It's on the mountains and the trees and the oceans and the seas. It is there. And it's evidence, it's evidence pointing you back like a trail of breadcrumbs to me. So if you're skeptical, I would invite you to look at the skills you possess, at, the, at your giftedness, at your intellectual capabilities, at the relationships that you have in your life and recognize those are not there because you are so winsome and wonderful or because you won the genetic lottery. They're there because God placed them there to point you back to him. Where you possess humility and dignity and kindness and mercy, those are all reflections of the God who made you. Rather than see those as just your right or your due or just, like I said, the kind of like, well, I got it from my mom and dad because of the DNA, Perhaps you might see what God is saying here. Jesus says, I created you. Therefore, that life points you to light, which is me. All right. We said we we're going to start with kind of how does Jesus say I'm light for the skeptical? Now let's turn our attention to how Jesus says I'm light for the disciple. I'm light for the follower. Now here's what I want you to see. We're going to just talk about what a life that's marked by the light of Jesus looks like. And like I said, it is a command to follow him and walk closely to him so that you might experience more of that light. I always think about, um, I was, I guess, not a very good student in my preaching class uh, in seminary because one of the things they taught us, I still don't know why this was a thing, but they said, you should act like there's a two-foot rope tied to you in the pulpit that you're uh, preaching from and never like go more than two feet away. And everyone who's been here for more than a week recognizes that I just kind of pace, right? 
So my professors would just be like, oh my goodness gracious, if they had to watch that. But for today's purposes, right, I want you to think about Jesus saying, follow me, like be tethered to me, be closer than two feet to me. And the closer you are, the more my light will be present in your life. Follow me and my light will be there. So before we get into anything that is the gifts that come from the light of Jesus, him being the light of the world and the light in our lives, before we get into any other thing, the first thing we have to recognize is the same thing we said to the skeptical, is that the first thing to rejoice in, what it means for Jesus to be light for you, is that he has reconciled you to the Father. You have God because Jesus is light. He has illuminated the Father for you to enjoy, to call friend, to worship, to pray to, to bow before. You get to do all these things because Jesus is your light. He's reconciled you to the Father. You remember Luke chapter 10, verse 20, the disciples go out, they proclaim the kingdom in the name of Jesus, and they come back and they're real excited and say, even demons fleed from us. They were driven out. And Jesus, in that moment, instead of saying, that's awesome, guys, good job, way to go, you're doing the works that I did, what is he saying? He says, takes that moment to teach them something. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. What's he saying? The, the greatest thing to rejoice in, to delight in, is that you have been reconciled to God, the Father. He's yours to enjoy. I hope you enjoy him. What's your level of enjoyment right now in the God who has reconciled you to himself? I pray it's deep and rich and that you are finding him to be deeply satisfying. So that, that's the first thing. And we walk closely now with Jesus. And as we do, he brings light into our life. So let's look at a couple ways that happens. So what does it mean to have a life full of light? Number one, it means having God's provision and protection. It means having God's provision and protection. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, I'm light for you, he's saying, I provide for you and I protect you. How do we see that in the text? Well, the context of the text is this uh, feast in the Jewish calendar year called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a feast that celebrates two things. So they gather for seven days and they are celebrating the harvest that's just come in and asking God to give them another good harvest in the coming year. So they've just had the grape and the olive harvest uh, in, the, in the Mediterranean. You can imagine that's a big deal, the grape and olive harvest. And so they've brought that in. Now, all of the people come to Jerusalem and they are celebrating. There's actually a point in the festival where uh, the men among the people grab torches of light and dance for joy. It's the most joyful of all the feasts, of all the celebrations prescribed in the Old Testament. In fact, in Jewish teaching, this is the only feast that will still exist when the Messiah comes. Interesting. And so, in the Feast of Booths, the other thing they're celebrating now is they would make for themselves booths and they wouldn't live in their homes. They would live in these temporary structures that they would make. And there was a specific instruction about how to make them. Palm leaves on the top, not so, enough to cover you from the rain, but not so much that you couldn't see the stars and look. And why did they do that? They did that because they were told to do that as a remembrance that their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness and lived in temp temporary structures. And when they did, God had protected them. They didn't have homes to protect them. God protected them. And so when we come to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, here's what he's saying. 
I am the fulfillment of the feast that you're celebrating right now. I am God's ultimate provision and I am his ultimate protection. I'm the one that does those things. So you celebrate the booths and the tabernacle and I'm telling you, I am the light of the world. That torch that you carry and dance for joy as you carry it about in this feast, that's me. I'm the one. Another bold claim. He's saying, I provide, I protect. So church family, here's what it means for you if you walk in the light of Jesus to have the light of life. He's saying, I will provide for you and I will protect you. I'll protect you from the schemes of the evil one. Right now, Jesus intercedes at the right hand of the Father, denying the accusations of the evil one against you. He says, no, they're my child. I won't listen to your accusation against them, evil one. Go away. Right now, he provides for you everything that you need for life and fullness. Even when he allows harm to come to us, he only does so that it might establish his kingdom more fully and drive us back to him. Only when he deems it to be something that he would use to work for good in us. Romans 8, 28. And ultimately, even should he allow death to come to us and not protect us from physical death, he protects us from the second death by giving us eternal life so that the evil one can never prevail against us. He protects us from a life of purposelessness and meaninglessness by inviting us into his kingdom and his work. The second thing it means to have a life full of light is it means having God's guidance to see and then to live for what is good and true. Throughout John, whenever John uses this phrase light versus darkness, we saw it in John 3 when we read that John 3 text. He uses it as a way of saying light is what is good and true, darkness is what is false and what is evil. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, and I bring light into your life, he's saying, I will provide for you the guidance that you need in order to live with moral clarity and to actually know what is good and what is bad. To not, look, in an age of moral confusion, is it good to have a God who says, I'll provide moral clarity for you? I'll show you what is true. I'll show you what is false. You can depend upon me. Come to me, follow me, and in a day-by-day way, I will illuminate for you how to live the truth out moment by moment, how to apply it to that situation at your work, how to live in righteousness in your relationships, how to walk in a way that pleases the Father and represents his light, his righteousness. Light is always goodness and truth. Everybody say goodness and truth. Every time you see light, particularly in John, always think those two things, goodness and truth. And Jesus is saying, I'll fill your life with both of them. I will fill your life with this moral clarity, with this awareness of what is good, and the courage to live it out, because it takes courage. The courage to live it out. I'll fill your life with that, and I will fill your life with an understanding of what is truth. What is Psalm 119, I think it's 105. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What he's saying, I'll light the way for you through my word. What does James chapter one, verse five say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him or her ask, right? Let it, just ask and I will give it. I will give it to you without reproach. Just come, come by faith and ask. What, what's he saying? I'll light the path of wisdom for you. I'll show you the way. That's what it means to have the light of Jesus, that kind of guidance into what is good and what is true. The next one, 
I hope it's particularly meaningful to you. Psalm 27.1, what does it mean to have Jesus as the light that produces life? It means having a weapon to battle against fear. You don't have to look very far to see fear and anxiety taking hold in our society and in, in our lives. Okay, let's not point out there. Let's, let's look in here. I know that a lot of you are really wrestling with anxiety and fear. Psalm 27.1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I what? Can we do that a little bit louder? <laughs> Whom shall I fear? That sounds a little fearful. The Lord is my light, meaning he illuminates what I need to have illuminated so that I don't have to be what? Afraid. Whom shall I what? Fear, fear yeah. Now listen, that doesn't mean I'll never feel fear again if I truly trust Jesus. You're going to feel fear. We see that again and again throughout scripture. Paul talks about the anxiety he feels for the churches that he's leading. David, again and again in the Psalms, says, Lord, deliver me, I'm afraid, right? What it means is when the Lord says, I'll illuminate your life with my light, that is a weapon against fear so that you will not be immobilized by it. When you feel fear, take courage. He will give you the light you need to just take the next step, the next step forward in faithfulness, the next step forward. Don't be afraid. And when you feel fear, have confidence. Call out to him. Say, be my light. Be my salvation so that I might not fear. David wrote that psalm in the context of armies surrounding the gates of Jerusalem. He says, the Lord is my light. Last thing it means, and again, we could go on and on. We're just looking at a handful of kind of the most pertinent texts here. What else does it mean for the Lord to give us a life full of light when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, the last thing is it means he's gonna bring deep relationships into our lives. Now, I say that because, again, you don't have to look far in our time now, a lot of it due to maybe COVID, the lingering effects still is this isolation that a lot of folks, there's an epidemic of loneliness. You hear that phrase all the time. You hear it from unbelievers, you hear it from believers, right? You can look at the Washington Post, the New York Times, article after article about why, why do we feel so isolated? Why do we feel so alone? And there's a thousand reasons you know, for that. But here's Jesus' promise to you. You walk with me, follow me, tether yourself to me, and I'm going to bring you into deep relationships with other people that share your faith. I'm going to do that. Now, I recognize that's a challenge if you are a follower of Jesus in here today and you're thinking, I don't really want that. Let me challenge you on that because the scriptures seem pretty clear that he calls no one to a life of isolation, but to a life of fellowship within the body of Christ. Deep and meaningful relationships. Joy-giving, life-giving relationships. Here's what, again, John, same author, but now in his letters to the churches, his epistles. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What's the presumption there? If you're walking in the light that Jesus provides to your life, there's going to be a meaningful kind of relationship with other believers. Then he says in 1 John 2, 9, so next chapter, verse 9 and 10, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So in other words, John, who loves this imagery of light and darkness, you're gonna see it all the time in John. John is saying the person who is receiving the light that comes from Christ so that their world is being illuminated by that light, that person has this deep value for connection with other followers of the light, with other people who are living in the light. He doesn't say those relationships will be easy. He's gonna presume you're gonna need to ask forgiveness a lot. You're gonna need to give forgiveness a lot. You're gonna need to learn to be patient with one another. It's gonna be sacrificial. There's gonna be lots of times where it's gonna require something of you that you don't want to give, but you're gonna need to give it anyway because you're counting others more important than yourselves. It's gonna be challenging. You're gonna keep having to die to yourself. If you own a pickup truck, you're gonna be asked to move people all the time. You know, so sell the pickup or start moving people. I guess those are your choices. There's just gonna be this constant, meaningful, deep type of relationships in your life. That's what he's inviting you into. So, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I hope you see today that invitation if you're skeptical. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower, I hope you, will, hope you grab something today in your relationship with those in your life that are skeptical because God has not just said Jesus is the light of the world. He says, follow me and you, I'll make you children of light. In other words, you then are the purveyors of that light everywhere you go. Let's pray together and then we'll worship the Lord through song. Father, we love you. We adore you. We adore your son. And we pray that you would take his words and plant them in our hearts. We recognize that there's so much to be drawn from every word of Jesus. Every syllable of his words is filled with meaning. And so we pray that you would help us to understand it and to live in light of it. I pray for my church family, Lord Jesus, that you would, through the power of your spirit, begin to Show them now where are those dark places that you're wanting to illuminate and invite them into that following of you. Do that in me as well, Father, that we might put sin to death and walk in truth and delight in you and receive your provision and protection. Teach us to follow you. We freely admit, Lord Jesus, that we are not good at it. We don't have the strength to do it, but we know it is in you. And so would you sustain us, give us strength, call us forward, give us courage. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.